in the last chapter. And he was really struggling with it. There was no question. Uh, it was, you know, it really hit him, hit him like a ton of bricks. And um, for, for, the, for the wonderfully confident bowler that he was, off the field, Warnie could be quite insecure. I remember, clearly remember the day we were training in Cardiff, uh, Sapphire Gardens, and Jeff Marsh said, yeah, alcohol ban. And I'm like, what? You are kidding me. And then also you had um, um, a lot of senior and strong personalities in there as well. So from that point of view, you know, it, it just felt not uneasy, but it just, it, it wasn't comfortable, put it that way. Australia was up and running in the World Cup, thumping Minnow Scotland in the first match of the tournament. But it was hardly the convincing performance Steve Waugh had hoped for. Oh yeah, Scotty, pop behind. First Scottish wicket is down. In the air, oh, he's dropped it. Well, you don't often see that. That was a pretty straightforward catch to Mark Wall. Light on that occasion, a chance at mid-off. And drop. That's the second chance that's gone down. Adam Dale dropping on this occasion. Mark Wall dropped the earlier one. Well, well caught, Steve Waugh. To move a long way to the left, so Glenn McGrath, after having a chance dropped, finally got someone to uh, cling on to it. Could be out. Bevan, yes! Well caught! That's what the Australians needed. Something special that comes from Michael Bevan at a widest bit on position. Lee takes the wicket. What a fine catch by Bevan. A win, but the result would prove a false dawn for the favourites, still dealing with the fallout from Shane Warne's sensational axing from the test squad just weeks earlier. Four days later, Australia headed to Cardiff to take on neighbours New Zealand. Winning the toss and batting first, the Aussies were soon under pressure. With Australia winning the toss and electing to bat, it seemed like a good decision against the outsiders from New Zealand. But it was the Kiwis who were in dazzling early form. Mark Wall was the first to go, trapped LBW by Allett. Australia's total had barely moved on to 32 off eight overs when Allett claimed another wicket, that of Gilchrist. That dismissal, though, brought together Lehman and Ricky Ponting in the middle. They took the score on to 61 before a brief break for Ray. Steve Waugh didn't last long, brilliantly called by Astle for just seven. Australia then eventually finishing on 213 for eight. Australia's bowlers were quickly into their work with a new ball, ripping out New Zealand's top order to take a stranglehold on the match. But from there, things quickly turned. After losing two more wickets, New Zealand started to dig in. This was a great recovery. Cairns with a massive six. The ball was lost in the trees and the Kiwis were starting to get out to the woods. Nothing could stop New Zealand now. But the damage had been done. It was fitting that Roger Twos made it a formality. This then one of the major upsets of the tournament so far. A brilliant partnership between Roger Twos and Chris Cairns saw New Zealand home in a result that sent shockwaves through the Australian camp. And according to selector Alan Border, the issues that affected the team in the lead-up to the tournament were beginning to have an impact on the field. I remember watching Australia play New Zealand um, and we just got absolutely thumped that particular day. And, uh, yeah, why we weren't gelling? I mean, you talk about all those individuals, um, but we just just weren't coming together as a side. Um, what, what was happening behind the scenes, I, I'm not 100% aware of. The Aussies would face Pakistan in their next match, a difficult prospect against a volatile side that could, on their day, beat anyone in the world. And things 
did not go to plan. Well, not exactly a team in turmoil, but certainly a team in trouble at the moment. And time is running out for Australia to get their act together in this World Cup. Quite simply, this is a must-win game. Yeah, it is. I think there's a lot of pressure on a lot of sides, but that's what a World Cup's all about. Yeah, the best teams have come through in tough situations. The victory over Scotland was far from convincing. Arguably, their worst fielding display for years. Then came defeat against the Kiwis. But one of the most powerful batting lineups in the world failed to fire, and they were outplayed in every department. That has to change against Pakistan. No one can't in the air. There's Rafa. He's a good catch. He'll take this. No, he won't. At six, it carries all the way. Can you believe that? Australia's powerful bowling unit had little answer for a rampant Pakistan side who posted an imposing total of 275, led by mercurial batsman Inzamam al-Haq. And Shane Warne's underwhelming start to the World Cup continued, returning figures of 1 for 50. In reply, Australia fought hard, but only Ricky Ponting passed 50, as the tournament favourites fell 10 runs short and slumped to their second loss on the trot. Yeah, we're just losing games, and... um... You get yourself in those situations in those World Cups where you, you know, you're o from two or o from three or one from four type scenario, which I think we were, and all of a sudden you, you know, you've you've got to start winning back-to-back games. Yeah, we were definitely slow out of the blocks. There's no doubt about that. Whether we were outplayed or just a bit um, complacent. I remember him him uh, saying that the Australia's fielding was atrocious. Oh, I'd probably rate it four or five out of ten. Uh, fielding was fielding was atrocious in a word. So we've got a lot of work to do. That was mainly, I reckon, designed to send an electric current through the team. You know, they'd they'd come out of a Caribbean summer to an English summer, and the players just looked stilted and uh, almost like cold, a bit cold, and they they weren't switched on. And I, I think that was an early tournament rev up. So he chose his words very selectively, Stephen. And but fielding was always a non-negotiable with him because mm-hmm. it was a sign of a the mood of the team, and b effort. He hated slipshod fielding. He was a good fieldsman himself. He worked hard in it. His brother Mark was superb, and he just he just felt your fielding is the badge worn by your team. And I got that. And it wasn't only Steve War feeling agitated. The controversial booze ban and the residual effects of Warren's axing in the Caribbean were causing friction inside the camp. It didn't take long for rumours of disharmony to make their way to the media pack covering the World Cup. Tim Lane from the ABC asked Steve War midway through the tournament, how do you feel about the fact that your team's a bit fractured? Tim apparently had been talking to New Zealand coach Steve Rickson, who of course is from Sydney yeah. and who told him that. And uh, Steve knew nothing of it. Uh, he said he was really taken aback and the story was denied and Tim Lane was quite humiliated by it. But many years later, I ran into a senior player from the team and he said, you know what, one of these days, I'm going to speak to Tim Lane and said, look, for what it's worth, you were right. There was tension in that team. Warren was struggling and uh, Stephen War was in the early stages of his captaincy and not the best Orator, like I think 
he hadn't really captained many teams, yeah. uh, and so he was struggling as well. What's more, the Australian tactics were also being called into question. Champion bowler Glenn McGrath, whose record in English conditions was second to none, was curiously not given the new ball in the opening two matches. Instead, the opening responsibilities fell to Damien Fleming at Adam Dale. Dale was a skillful yet relatively unknown Queensland swing bowler. We went into the tournament. Um, uh, Flemo's a terrific bowler and, and uh, deserved his spot. And uh, history will show his numbers are, are awesome. Uh, he and I were to open the bowling and swing the ball around. Uh, we, we'd taken a, a game plan similar to South Africa where Alan Donald was first change. I think Callis and Pollock might have opened up. Elworthy. Yeah. Not that I'm anywhere near those guys, no. but the, the philosophy was to swing the ball and, and with the Duke. And... McGrath was to bowl first change, like Alan Donald. Uh, we played Scotland, didn't win convincingly, played New Zealand, got rolled. According to Adam Gilchrist, it was a deliberate tactic aimed at capitalising on the new Duke's balls, but one that may not have sat well with the legendary spearhead. That was a tactic we had Adam Dale, who was a, a sort of a, a medium, slow, medium swing bowler, really you know, swung, a really skilled bowler. Um, and... We thought that, that by saving, getting uh, Adam the new ball was where he was going to be most effective and almost try to bowl him six or seven really effective overs at the top and then bring, you know, gee, imagine if he does well and then, oh, McGrath's coming on. God, it doesn't get any easier. But it didn't quite work out that way. Um, and what did Glenn think of it, do you think? Oh, he's a little bit frustrated about it, I think. I think he loved being the spearhead. Um, so... Yeah, it, it, it just didn't work. A few batsmen probably got a hold of, of Chip and a little, little of Adam a little bit. Maybe the, the lack of pace, I don't know what it was. But um, yeah, we, we, we eventually got to the point where, well, McGrath's our, our leader and he's got to have the new ball. With their tournament future at stake, Australia acted and Dale was axed. I always felt a little bit sorry for Adam Dale in the tournament because... He, his career was an outstanding monument to someone who squeezed every bit out of his ability. When he was playing club cricket in Brisbane and winning two Peter Burge medals for the, for the comp player of the competition, people said, yeah, but you wouldn't play him for Queensland. He's not a state bowler well, at 131 kilometres now. Well, he was. Then they said, well, you wouldn't play him from Australia, but he did. But that was the first time the World Cup in 1999, when there was high expectations of Adam Dale. I spoke to him during the tournament, and, and I could feel that he was feeling it. He said, oh, I spoke to my wife, and she, I was saying, oh, gosh, you know, I mean, all these players to watch, and, you know, the guy's mm -hmm. kind of spearhead Australia. I think Adam felt that pressure, so uh, consequently he didn't have probably the World Cup that was tipped of him. Glenn McGrath was born to open the attack, and, and that was a mistake. It was basically done, I think, because Australia had two fine swing bowlers in Damien Fleming and Adam Dale. And uh, that, that, that sounds great in theory, but, you know, McGrath could swing the ball as well, and he was a far greater th threat for uh, nervous opening batsmen. Dale wasn't the only one to struggle in the early parts of the tournament. Australia's opening batsman Mark Waugh and Adam Gilchrist were having a tough time dealing with those typical English conditions. Memories of that World Cup at the start were just, it was cold. It was early, like it was mid-May. Uh, two white balls, two Dukes white balls flying around everywhere, but it probably 
planted a few little seeds of negativity in my mind about how challenging it was going to be as an opening batsman in that tournament uh, against those, you know, type of that type of white ball uh, on wickets that were just going to do a little bit. With their tournament at a crossroads and tensions rising in the camp, senior player Tom Moody, who had been part of a victorious 1987 side, decided to act. In what would amount to a crisis meeting, Moody approached Steve Waugh and coach Jeff Marsh in a bid to have the unpopular booze ban lifted. It proved to be a pivotal moment in Australia's World Cup campaign. Maybe that 99 World Cup team you know, went a bit too hard as far as you know, the, the, the drinking and they weren't allow, allowed to relax. Yep. And when you're not playing well and you're not relaxed, uh, it's not a good combination. So um, probably the lifting of that ban um, probably saw the... <laughs> the boys just relax a little bit more and enjoy themselves and with that comes better performance. And that's where Tom Moody, who was probably more a mate of Jeff Marsh's than a, than a team member coach relationship because they you know, played a lot of cricket together for WA and Tommy was back in the 87 World Cup squad. So fortunately Moods went to, um, to Swampy and just said, look, I'm not sure that's the right answer. And, and we came out of it with a relaxed sort of curfew, if you like, or rules, more relaxed rules that yeah. more lent themselves to rather than being curfews or directives, they were, we're treating you like adults, we're giving you the responsibility, but make sure you, you look after that. Moods was good mates with Steve War. I was very good mates with Tom Moody, so uh, they were senior players and strong figures. And at the end of the day, I think it was just all thrown out the door where people were going, you know what? you just got to get ready to play. How are we going to win games of career? I don't want to talk about personalities, with this one not getting on with that one, selection and all that sort of stuff. It was more about just being able to get in there, focus, and we had the talent. There's no doubt we had the talent to win a World Cup. We just weren't getting the best out of all those sort of um, possibilities. I think due to Stephen's leadership, the group felt really comfortable talking about things and airing it. Yep. If, if we'd had a leader that didn't allow any feedback, we wouldn't have changed that rule and we might not have won the tournament. So to Stephen's credit, he let that change. And uh, big Tom Murdy, I remember Gilly and all, all the guys, we had a collective discussion about it and the decision was made and history will show what happened. Tom went to him and said, not a good idea. You've got to change that. So Steve permitted them to have drinks with their meals. And I, I, I'm quite convinced... Had Steve Ward not dropped the beer ban, the booze ban, Australia wouldn't won the World Cup. It just sort of took tension out of it. But while the lifting of the booze ban alleviated tension on the touring squad, it did little to ease the pressure on Steve Waugh, who was short of runs, struggling to find his identity as a captain, and leading a side on the brink of being dumped from the World Cup. Put simply, his job was on the line. Steve Waugh loved the challenge, and... You must remember that he was under huge pressure himself. The chairman of selectors, Trevor Hones, was on the tour. Stephen spoke to Trevor Hones. He always liked to know where he stood. And he said, if we bow out of this tournament early, is my captaincy under threat? And Hones said, yes. It would probably cost him the captaincy. It took some adjustment to him. He ended up being a very fine captain. But at the start, he had work to do, and that, that is very, very clear. He wasn't the orator that Mark Taylor was, and of course he didn't quite have the presence of an Alan Border or a Greg Chappell, not at the start, so he had to find his way. Seaman had been around for, for a few, quite a few years before he took on the captaincy, yeah. so he, he probably had some idea of you know what, what it entails, and, and probably 
not dissimilar with me. I'd been around, you know, from the late seventies, and I took over in nineteen eighty four. So you're you're around the team, but when you when you haven't got those responsibilities as the captain, uh, it's amazing how you know, like from the sideline, you think, oh, we should bowl this bloke, or we should do this, should do that, whatever. Stephen did take a while, a bit like myself, to really come to terms with it. The scenario for the Aussies was now black and white. They could not afford another loss. In fact, they would have to remain unbeaten over the next seven matches to lift the trophy. Probably the best thing that happened was that we got to a situation where we couldn't lose another game. We lost two of our first three and we were on wood. The focus in my mind really changed from curfews, drinking bans, um, culture and all that sort of stuff to go, you know what, we just need to win games of cricket. I don't care what goes on, I don't care what you do, you just come ready to play, train hard and we want to win a World Cup because we all spoke about it being, a lot of us, our only opportunity to win a World Cup, our last probably tour in a World Cup. So all of the focus really then became on, on, on game day. Next up for the Aussies was Bangladesh and Steve Waugh decided to roll the dice. Glenn McGrath was handed the new ball for the first time in the World Cup while all-rounder Tom Moody was brought into the side. It would prove pivotal. Oh, that's got to be close. Yes, he's given him. That's out. That looked to me as if uh, McGraw was just a little frustrated with beating the outside edge, decided that he was going to bowl it straight. It was straight. And a big appeal for LBW. Bangladesh have lost their first wicket. In here. And caught. Ponting. What a gem. That's what the Australians need. It's something special. And Ricky Ponting has supported McGraw 110%. Superb catch. Australia would bowl Bangladesh out for 178. Needing a run rate boost, War promoted hard-hitting all-rounder Brendan Julian to bat at three and Tom Moody batted at four. The result? Victory in 19.5 overs. It was a T20 run chase in a 50-over match. Moody cracking 56 off just 29 balls, while Gilchrist found form with a blistering 63 off 39 deliveries. That one's absolutely smashed. That'll help the confidence no end. Well, that's a magnificent shot. Hit on the rise. Oh, there he goes again. He loves that shot. When he's playing well, he gets the ball away down towards the deep mid-wicket and deep square leg boundary. Don't bowl short to Adam Gilchrist. We'll make that another four. Straight down the ground. It's rushing away over this beautiful outfield. And into the fence it goes again. Gilchrist. Could this be his big day? Oh, that's a beautiful shot by Moody. What a way to start. Inside out, over extra cover. And that's gone to the boundary for four. Yes, I don't think he's out yet for practice. Tom Moody hits one in our direction for six. So that brings up uh, Tom Moody's half century. 28 balls for his 50. Oh, he's hit that one, and it could be out, actually. No, it's not. It's just over his head, and I think that one may have gone all the way. That's the end of proceedings. A wonderful shot there to finish the match. Australia have knocked off this Bangladesh total in 19.5 overs. And, and that was a turning point for us. So, like we, fortunately, it was Bangladesh who weren't a strong team at the time. We had a crushing win there, and that gave us a little bit of momentum. I think the inclusion of Tom Moody just uh, was like a pep pill for the team. Uh, he, he, he basically spoke to Steve Waugh and said, you know, I reckon I can add something to this team. When they put him in 
it just gave Australia that middle order crunch that's so important in World Cups and sets a mood uh, as if to say, we're coming for you guys. And, and, and Moody played a really key role in that in that cup and it started at Bangladesh. Uh, it, it was just, a, a, you could just tell the mood was changing. Australia were on their way. One down, six to go. In the next chapter. The best thing that could be said about that game was how fortunate it was that it was played before the era of social media. And we all thought, you are nuts, Warney. But, uh, mate, he was uh, Nostradamus. That was a turning point, because we won the game, obviously, and we felt that winning that game, that was probably nearly like winning a final for us. It haunted him for, for years. I think it still does. The Miracle of 99 is brought to you by Fox Cricket. Reporting and narration by senior journalist Tom Morris, and produced by Brenton Cherry and Jonathan Bahume. For more content, visit foxsports.com.au.